Chapter 9 of The First Men in the Moon by H.G. Wells. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Cliff Stone of Sydney, Australia. Chapter 9. Prospecting Begins. We ceased to gaze. We turned to each other, the same thought, the same question in our eyes. For these plants to grow, there must be some air, however attenuated, air that we also should be able to breathe. The manhole, I said. Yes, said Cavour. If it is air, we see. In a little while, I said, these plants will be as high as we are. Suppose, suppose, after all, is it certain? How do you know that stuff is air? It may be nitrogen. It may be carbonic acid, even. That's easy, he said, and set about proving it. He produced a big piece of crumpled paper from the bale, lit it and thrust it hastily through the manhole valve. I bent forward and peered down through the thick glass for its appearance outside, that little flame on whose evidence depended so much. I saw the paper drop out and lie lightly upon the snow. The pink flame of its burning vanished. For an instant it seemed to be extinguished and then I saw a little blue tongue upon the edge of it that trembled and crept and spread. Quietly the whole sheet, save where it lay in immediate contact with the snow, charred and shriveled and sent up a quivering thread of smoke. There was no doubt left to me. The atmosphere of the moon was either pure oxygen or air, and capable thereof, unless its tenuity was excessive, of supporting our alien life. We might emerge and live. I sat down with my legs on either side of the manhole and prepared to unscrew it, but Cavour stopped me. There is first a little precaution, he said. He pointed out that although it was certainly an oxygenated atmosphere outside, it might still be so rarefied so as to cause us grave injury. He reminded me of mountain sickness and of the bleeding that often afflicts aeronauts who have ascended too swiftly, and he spent some time in the preparation of a sickly-tasting drink which he insisted on my sharing. It made me feel a little numb, but otherwise had no effect on me. Then he permitted me to begin unscrewing. Presently the glass stopper of the manhole was so far undone that the denser air within our sphere began to escape along the thread of the screw, singing as a kettle sings before it boils. Thereupon he made me desist. It speedily became evident that the pressure outside was very much less than it was within. How much less it was, we had no means of telling. I sat grasping the stopper with both hands, ready to close it again, if, in spite of our intense hope, the lunar atmosphere should after all prove too rarefied for us, and Cavour sat with a cylinder of compressed oxygen at hand to restore our pressure. We looked at one another in silence and then at the fantastic vegetation that swayed and grew visibly and noiselessly without, and ever that shrill piping continued. My blood vessels began to throb in my ears, and the sound of Cavour's movements diminished. I noted how still everything had become, because of the thinning of the air. As our air sizzled out from the screw, the moisture of it condensed in little puffs. Presently I experienced a peculiar shortness of breath that lasted indeed during the whole of the time of our exposure to the moon's exterior atmosphere, and a rather unpleasant sensation about the ears and fingernails and the back of the throat grew upon my attention and presently passed off again. But then came vertigo and nausea that abruptly changed the quality of my courage. 
I gave the lid of the manhole half a turn and made a hasty explanation to Cavour. But now he was the more sanguine. He answered me in a voice that seemed extraordinarily small and remote because of the thinness of the air that carried the sound. He recommended a nip of brandy and set me the example and presently I felt better. I turned the manhole stopper back again. The throbbing in my ears grew louder and then I remarked that the piping note of the outrush had ceased. For a time I could not be sure that it had ceased. Well, said Cavour in the ghost of a voice. Well, said I, shall we go on? I thought, is this all? If you can stand it. By way of answer, I went on unscrewing. I lifted the circular operculum from its place and laid it carefully on the bale. A flake or so of snow whirled and vanished as that thin and unfamiliar air took possession of our sphere. I knelt and then seated myself at the edge of the manhole, peering over it. Beneath, within a yard of my face, lay the untrodden snow of the moon. There came a little pause. Our eyes met. It doesn't distress your lungs too much, said Cavour. No, I said, I can stand this. He stretched out his hand for his blanket, thrust his head through its centre hole and wrapped it about him. He sat down on the edge of the manhole. He let his feet drop until they were within six inches of the lunar ground. He hesitated for a moment, then thrust himself forward, dropping these intervening inches and stood upon the untrodden soil of the moon. As he stepped forward, he was refracted grotesquely by the edge of the glass. He stood for a moment, looking this way and that. Then he drew himself together and leapt. The glass distorted everything, but it seemed to me, even then, to be an extremely big leap. He had at one bound become remote. He seemed twenty or thirty feet off. He was standing high upon a rocky mass and gesticulating back to me. Perhaps he was shouting, but the sound did not reach me. But how the deuce had he done this? I felt like a man who has just seen a new conjuring trick. In a puzzled state of mind, I too dropped through the manhole. I stood up. Just in front of me, the snowdrift had fallen away and made a sort of ditch. I made a step and jumped. I found myself flying through the air, saw the rock on which he stood coming to meet me, clutched it and clung in a state of infinite amazement. I gasped a painful laugh. I was tremendously confused. Cavour bent down and shouted in piping tones for me to be careful. I had forgotten that on the moon, with only an eighth part of the Earth's mass and a quarter of its diameter, my weight was barely a sixth what it was on Earth. But now that fact insisted on being remembered. We are out of Mother Earth's leading strings now, he said. With a guarded effort, I raised myself to the top and moving as cautiously as a rheumatic patient, stood up beside him under the blaze of the sun. The sphere lay behind us on its dwindling snowdrift thirty feet away. As far as the eye could see over the enormous disorder of rocks that formed the crater floor, the same bristling scrub that surrounded us was starting into life, diversified here and there by bulging masses of a cactus form, and scarlet and purple lichens that grew so fast they seemed to crawl over the rocks. The whole area of the crater seemed to me then to be one similar wilderness up to the very foot of the surrounding cliff. This cliff was apparently bare of vegetation save at its base, and with buttresses and terraces and platforms that did not very greatly attract our attention at the time. It was many miles away from us in every direction. 
We seemed to be almost at the centre of the crater, and we saw it through a certain haziness that drove before the wind. For there was even a wind now in the thin air, a swift yet weak wind that chilled exceedingly but exerted little pressure. It was blowing round the crater as it seemed to the hot illuminated side from the foggy darkness under the sunward wall. It was difficult to look into this eastward fog. We had to peer with half-closed eyes beneath the shade of our hands because of the fierce intensity of the motionless sun. It seems to be deserted, said Kabor. Absolutely desolate. I looked about me again. I retained even then a clinging hope of some quasi-human evidence, some pinnacle of building, some house or engine, but everywhere one looked spread the tumbled rocks and peaks and crests and the darting scrub and those bulging cacti that swelled and swelled, a flat negation as it seemed of all such hope. It looks as though these plants had it to themselves, I said. I see no trace of any other creature. No insects, no birds, no, not a trace, not a scrap nor particle of animal life. If there was... What would they do in the night? No, there's just these plants alone. I shaded my eyes with my hand. It's like the landscape of a dream. These things are less like earthly land plants than the things one imagines among the rocks at the bottom of the sea. Look at that yonder. One might imagine it a lizard changed into a plant. And the glare. This is only the fresh morning, said Kabor. He sighed and looked about him. This is no world for men, he said, and yet, in a way, it appeals. He became silent for a time, then commenced his meditative humming. I started at a gentle touch and found a thin sheet of livid lichen lapping over my shoe. I kicked at it and it fell to powder, and each speck began to grow. I heard Cavour exclaim sharply and perceived that one of the fixed bayonets of the scrub had pricked him. He hesitated, his eyes sought among the rocks about us. A sudden blaze of pink had crept up a ragged pillar of crag. It was a most extraordinary pink, a livid magenta. Look, said I, turning, and behold, Cavour had vanished. For an instant I stood transfixed. Then I made a hasty step to look over the verge of the rock, but in my surprise at his disappearance I forgot once more that we were on the moon. The thrust of my foot that I made in striding would have carried me a yard on earth. On the moon it carried me six, a good five yards over the edge. For the moment the thing had something of the effect of those nightmares when one falls and falls. For while one falls sixteen feet in the first second of a fall on earth, on the moon one falls two and with only a sixth of one's weight. I fell, or rather I jumped down about ten yards I suppose, it seemed to take quite a long time, five or six seconds, I should think. I floated through the air and fell like a feather, knee-deep in a snowdrift in the bottom of a gully of blue-grey, white-veined rock. I looked about me. Cavour! I cried. But no Cavour was visible. Cavour! I cried louder, and the rocks echoed me. I turned fiercely to the rocks and clambered to the summit of them. Cavour! I cried. My voice sounded like the voice of a lost lamb. The sphere, too, was not in sight, and for a moment a horrible feeling of desolation pinched my heart. Then I saw him. He was laughing and gesticulating to attract my attention. He was on a bare patch of rock twenty or thirty yards away. 
I could not hear his voice, but jump, said his gestures. I hesitated. The distance seemed enormous, yet I reflected that surely I must be able to clear a greater distance than Cavour. I made a step back, gathered myself together, and leapt with all my might. I seemed to shoot right up in the air as though I should never come down. It was horrible and delightful, and as wild as a nightmare to go flying off in this fashion. I realised my leap had been altogether too violent. I flew clean over Cavour's head and beheld a spiky confusion in a gully spreading to meet my fall. I gave a yelp of alarm. I put out my hands and straightened my legs. I hit a huge fungoid bulk that burst all about me, scattering a mass of orange spores in every direction and covering me with orange powder. I rolled over, spluttering, and came to rest convulsed with breathless laughter. I became aware of Cavour's little round face peering over a bristling hedge. He shouted some faded inquiry. Eh? I tried to shout, but could not do so for want of breath. He made his way towards me, coming gingerly among the bushes. We've got to be careful, he said. This moon has no discipline. She'll let us smash ourselves. He helped me to my feet. You exerted yourself too much, he said, dabbing at the yellow stuff with his hand to remove it from my garments. I stood passive and panting, allowing him to beat off the jelly from my knees and elbows and lecture me upon my misfortunes. We don't quite allow for the gravitation. Our muscles are scarcely educated yet. We must practice a little when you have got your breath. I pulled two or three little thorns out of my hand and sat for a time on a boulder of rock. My muscles were quivering, and I had that feeling of personal disillusionment that comes at the first fall to the learner of cycling on earth. It suddenly occurred to Cavour that the cold air in the gully, after the brightness of the sun, might give me a fever, so we clambered back into the sunlight. We found that beyond a few abrasions I had received no serious injuries from my tumble, and at Cavour's suggestion we were presently looking round for some safe and easy landing place for my next leap. We chose a rocky slab some ten yards off, separated from us by a little thicket of olive-green spikes. Imagine it there, said Cavour, who was assuming the airs of a trainer, and he pointed to a spot about four feet from my toes. This leap I managed without difficulty, and I must confess I found a certain satisfaction in Cavour's falling short by a foot or so and tasting the spikes of the scrub. One has to be careful, you see, he said, pulling out his thorns, and with that he ceased to be my mentor and became my fellow learner in the art of lunar locomotion. We chose a still easier jump and did it without difficulty, and then leapt back again, and to and fro several times accustoming our muscles to the new standard. I could never have believed, had I not experienced it, how rapid that adaptation would be. In a very little time indeed, certainly after fewer than thirty leaps, we could judge the effort necessary for a distance with almost terrestrial assurance. And all this time the lunar plants were growing around us, higher and denser and more entangled, every moment thicker and taller, spiked plants, green cactus masses, fungi, fleshy and lichenous things, strangest radiate and sinuous shapes. But we were so intent upon our leaping that for a time we gave no heed to their unfaltering expansion. An extraordinary elation had taken possession of us. Partly, I think, it was our sense of release from the confinement of the sphere. Mainly, however, 
the thin sweetness of the air, which I am certain contained a much larger proportion of oxygen than our terrestrial atmosphere. In spite of the strange quality of all about us, I felt as adventurous and experimental as a cockney would do, placed for the first time among mountains, and I do not think it occurred to either of us, face to face though we were with the unknown, to be very greatly afraid. We were bitten by a spirit of enterprise. We selected a lichenous cockney, perhaps fifteen yards away, and landed neatly on its summit, one after the other. Good, we cried to each other, good! And Cavour made three steps and went off to a tempting slope of snow a good twenty yards and more beyond. I stood for a moment struck by the grotesque effect of his soaring figure, his dirty cricket cap and spiky hair, his little round body, his arms and his knickerbockered legs tucked up tightly against the weird spaciousness of the lunar scene. A gust of laughter seized me, and then I stepped off to follow. Plump, I dropped beside him. We made a few gargantuan strides, leapt three or four times more, and sat down at last in a lichenous hollow. Our lungs were painful. We sat holding our sides and recovering our breath, looking appreciation to one another. Cavour panted something about amazing sensations, and then came a thought into my head. For the moment it did not seem a particularly appalling thought, simply a natural question arising out of the situation. By the way, I said, where exactly is the sphere? Cavour looked at me. Eh? The full meaning of what we were saying struck me sharply. Cavour, I cried, laying a hand on his arm. Where is the sphere? End of chapter 9